you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is playing the film festival circuit. Not really anymore. I don't know why I'm saying this. It's not really playing anymore. It's, it's going to be out in about three months, four months from now. Very exciting. I'm Liz Manichal. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features and is currently in development on about five more. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance Institute's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome filmmaker Asif Akbar onto the show to talk about his extensive career making films, how he got to where he is today, like basically making movie after movie after movie after movie, and what went into making the movie The Commando. Asif talks about his love for producing as well as directing and how he pulls his projects together, which is very, very fascinating. Liz wasn't here with, for me with this one, so she missed out, but it was very, very, very cool. After that, Liz and I talk about an article from The Hollywood Reporter about the dizzying uncertainty of 2021, which doesn't sound any different than my understanding of the film business anyways. And then we talk about our hopes and dreams for 2022. But before all that, Happy New Year, Liz. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's New Year's now. How are you doing? I'm okay. As, as mentioned before, I don't do well on vacations. I really like the regular churn of a schedule and slots and knowing exactly what I'm, I'm type A. I like to know procedures and plans well in advance. So I'm doing the best I can. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. My holiday plans got sidelined by the tremendous amount of snow in Tahoe. What? And the fact that there's like... You know, crazy amount of delays and change required. I don't know if it's required today, but basically, like we were going to leave yesterday on Wednesday and, you know, it was basically decided by my family. My mom's here in town. We were going to go back to my mom's house, you know, my whole family to like do our regular New Year's thing. And she was like, I don't want to go. Like, this is too, too crazy driving for me. I don't want to do it. And then, you know, we have a newborn. So we're like, if there's chains, we're just not going to go. So you guys go. But we're not going to go if there's chains because like putting on chains is tough enough. But with a, a baby in the car, let's screw that. Yeah. And so, yeah. So basically, we didn't go anywhere. So we're just staying here and keeping a little New Year's at home, which is very fun. I'm soaking up as many movies as I can, you know, watching lots of good stuff. I'm almost done with Wheel of Time, which <laughs> started off rocky, but got really good. So, yeah, I don't know why you think that's so funny, but it's a good show. <laughs> I think it's funny because I think my entire family is watching Wheel of Time. And I, it took Sean and me three nights to watch the newest, newest Matrix movie. I just think it's funny oh. that like it, we, <laughs> we have to spread out one viewing over like multiple nights and you were almost done with an entire series. But it's just one season. So, I guess it's not that impressive. All refugees. Well, yeah, when our baby goes to bed. You know, we're into whatever we're watching. Like, we we watched all of Succession within, like, probably oh a month. That is amazing. Which was really great. And we, we, we timed out, so we, like, watched the premiere of the season finale the same moment everybody else watched the season finale. Like, it was like, we caught up just for that. But yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's with us, it's, it's like we just get stuck on something. Like, you know, yeah. we like a show, and then it's like we have to consume all of it until we're done. Like, I, I, oh. I, I like, after much convincing, my, my wife and I watched the new episode of Boba Fett, which just came out last night, mm-hmm. instead of watching the finale of Wheel of Time. What? You know, just so I was like, because let's break it up a little bit. Let's like spread it out. Let's enjoy it a little bit more. <laughs> but anyways. I get that. So that's what I've been doing. We watched episode two of Yellow Jackets yesterday, ah. which is phenomenal. I love the show so much. And then 
We watched Frasier last night. I mean, I would just rather watch Frasier than most things. Frasier? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, it's like those shows are from such a, another time. Yeah. Like, I was watching Seinfeld, like, sort of while working recently. And, and it's like, it's like taking me, like, on this, like, little time, time portal back into, like, you know, before there was internet everywhere, before there were cell phones, back when we had rotary phones. Like, like people, like our kids are not going to have any idea what the heck this is they're talking about. Like half of those shows won't make any sense to them. I love it. I love it. It'll be weird. I love it. But yeah, no, sounds like we've been having fun holidays. Very different, but very fun. But while you're, you know, drinking your eggnog, or I guess that now you've already drank all your eggnog because this is the new year. Well, what do you do in the new year while you're popping your poppers? What will you do? I don't know. <laughs> Cracking your crackers? Reference. Anyways, <laughs> while you're doing whatever you're doing in the new year, you should support us on Patreon. Jump over to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash podcast, And we have an AMA coming up in two weeks, basically, on the 17th of January at 2.30 p.m. Pacific time. And this is only for Patreon members. So if you're not a Patreon subscriber, you won't have access to this. You won't get to ask us any, any questions that you'd like. Uh, we've never done this before. It's going to be the first time. I'm excited to see how it turns out. You know, how many questions we'll have or how many people will log in to chat or if it'll just be Liz and I answering questions of each other. Who knows? We'll see. But it'll be fun either way. You can also check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. It's an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and their top 25 writers list featuring some of their best writers. So head over to www.networkisa.org and use our promo code MMIH2021 before January 15th to get 20% off an ISA Connect membership for new members only, by the way. But without any more delay, here is my chat, because Liz wasn't there, with Asif Akbar. So I'm here with Asif Akbar, the director of The Commando, also a writer too, right? Yes, I, I was one of the story writers and the screenplay was written by a good friend of mine and our other producer, Al Bravo, Koji Steven Sakai. And we've collaborated on a few other scripts as well. But, you know, The Commando just seemed to be the one that came to fruition first, you know, in this business. Uh, we, uh, you know, and I write myself as well. And we have a lot of passion projects, a lot of scripts, a lot of projects that we get excited about, but it's all about timing. And The Commando was one of those scripts that didn't take us too long. Process was significantly, you know, reasonable timing compared to some other films. So we were very blessed to get that one off. And now it's alive and about to release on January 7th. So before we get into the other questions, give us an elevator pitch for The Commando. So it's basically a thriller. The Commando is played by Michael Jai White, who is an ex-Commando, ex-DAA that just comes home with PTSD. And all of a sudden now, his daughters uncover millions of dollars buried under their floors and walls and come to find out the money belongs to an ex-convict played by Mickey Rourke who is recently out of prison and now comes back home to get his money. And of course, he goes face to face with the commando, Michael J. White, and all hell breaks loose. <laughs> and how many days did you shoot the film? It was actually one of my fastest productions. 
you know, we shot during the pandemic and with certain limitations and safety and, and, you know, just trying to adapt to this whole new world of filmmaking post pandemic. Surprisingly, you know, we had like 11 days to shoot it out. Wow. In New Mexico. And for an action film, you know, that's uh, significantly low, but I believe we've done the best we possibly could. Everyone was very passionate for the project. And again, you know, we, we had a lot of, you know, film family, which we call it crew that we've worked with and we've had sync with to make the process go faster. We had two units running at the same time. And, you know, the action unit ran separately, which was a second unit directed by our second unit director and one of the other producers, Phil Tan. And Phil and I, we have multiple projects together. We're in sync. You know, we, we had our team. And that's the beautiful thing about filmmaking or any projects is it's the most collaborative art form, I like to call it, because uh, you have to be so collaborative as a team with every department, every crew member, every cast member to put this thing together. And especially under you know, circumstances like today that we have to face all these new challenges, not only with the COVID and health, but with also safety, with, you know, the tragic recent events of what happened in New Mexico. I'm filming an action movie right now, and it's a full stag union, and we're maintaining all protocols for safety across the board. And that's always been the priority. And number one is safety is always number one. But now, it's been amped up more and, and which is actually a good thing. You know, people don't realize every time we go out on a movie set, whether it's an action film, horror film or a drama or whatever it is, we all work together and count on each other to watch each other's back and at the same time, keep each other safe and do what we do best together to make a product for the audience. So, you know, it's all about the people you surround yourself with and that team. And I've been very fortunate enough to, you know, have those people around me to be able to do these films like a pipeline. And uh, what was the rough budget of the film, if you can say? I'm not in liberty to say that, actually, because it's gone through so many channels. Because, you know, you have your production budget, you have your, you know, post budget, you have your marketing distribution. And at the end of the day, to be honest, I don't even know as the filmmaker myself. (laughs) So I couldn't, I, I wouldn't want to say a number and then, you know, which I know wouldn't be accurate at all. Cause to be honest, I don't. Well, can you like give us like something rough, like it's under 10 million, over 10 million, like something around there. Like uh, yeah, even I'd, I'd say yeah, under 10 million for sure. Mm-hmm. It was a modest, I'd say, you know, between the mid to, you know, under mid, mid 5 million. So I guess the audience will judge for what it is. But- <laughs> In its schedule, so you can imagine, you know, 11 days and, and the kind of film it is. I hope we did a great job. And how did you and your team come up with the idea for the movie? You know, it, it was part of a few scripts that we were trying to pitch and get made at that time. This was before the pandemic, it's so like late 2019, early 2020. And it was, it was in, a list of, I believe, five or six films that myself and my other partners, producing partners, were pitching. And at that time, we we thought of making just a cool thriller. It wasn't even supposed to be so much of an action film. The idea of that, you know, doing it in 
limited locations and to just kind of make an exciting uh, edge of your seat type of a thriller. It just, the concept came about myself, Al Bravo and Koji, the screenwriter. And we were just, you know, coming up with different ideas to write. And, you know, in our spare time, that's what we do. We, we come up with new film ideas and, and stories and scripts. And for me, like in Koji, we write pretty fast. Once we get our vision and, you know, the way I direct, I, I always envision the entire project from beginning to end and I shoot to edit. Same thing when I write. I, I write to shoot and shoot to edit. And it's, it's part of that whole process and that you have to kind of understand from beginning to end to be able to execute you know, what you want and get what you want on screen. So it was pretty easy for us to visualize you know, the entire story and kind of think about also the budget and the resources we had in play as producers. That's why a lot of the films that I do, I, I'm actually, I produce a lot more because, you know, I love helping other fellow filmmakers and other directors get their movies made. So we have those resources and channels uh, built up over the years from, you know, making so many productions now, it, it all comes to delivery. So once you have those channels based on your delivery record, um, completed films that go through certain, you know, studio distributions, we have, you know, opened up certain doors to where we can take in scripts and stories and pitch them and Based on the packaging, you know, who you have really determines what your budget is. The cast pretty much, you know, doesn't matter if you have a $100 million movie, $10 million movie, or even a $500,000 movie. It always comes down to what cast you have. So we start thinking about like with the commando, we had a few actors we were thinking about. And, and surprisingly enough, it worked out perfectly as Michael J. White was the first actor we thought of when we wrote the character because we knew that that was one of the avenues we had for distribution where you know you have Michael Jai White you you get a certain amount and then you have a second name you have a certain amount and that determines how much your budget can end up being so we played around with a few cast you know members that we've worked with before in the past and actors that we envisioned in the roles. And for each of the projects, each of, uh, each of the scripts that we had, we had a cast wish list and, you know, a package that we put together with the synopsis, cast wish list, you know, project plan. And then you start pitching and it happened to be that Commando was the right timing. And it took us about six months and, you know, to be honest, I didn't expect it to go that fast because I was actually working on pre-production in another film that hopefully I'm going to be able to shoot uh, within the next couple of months. But because of the pandemic, that was a much bigger film that required to shoot in multiple locations internationally and also within the States with also a significantly large ensemble cast. So getting all the dates and putting it all together, we had to delay that project, which is MR9. And because of that being delayed, my schedule opened up, the actors' availabilities opened up for the commando, and it just happened to happen. And then since then, I 
made probably another dozen films. So my whole point <laughs> is, never know. You got to be ready with multiple projects. It wasn't like we just came up with the commando and that was it. That's all we were pushing for. There were three, four other films we were pushing for at the same time, and then a couple other ones already, you know, in process. But because of circumstances of, of the entire world and everything, it just happened to be the commando. And same thing with everything else we've been making the past year and a half, two years, even my other film, Ace and the Christmas Miracle, which was a Christmas holiday comedy that just released last month on November 16th through Lionsgate. And that film was actually one of my records, believe it or not. I was shot in eight days in California <laughs> during that and that stars John Lovitz as the talking horse. It's a magical talking horse. Kids <laughs> as Brandy Roderick. And it was a cute little family film we made just for fun because, you know, we knew we had a slot to deliver for distribution and we knew the kind of subject matter we needed and the resources we had in play and we made it happen. And that's what we've just been doing is, is making these films with the resources we have at the time we have them to get them done and deliver. And that's what it comes down to is providing the content for the audience. When right now with the streaming wars, there's definitely a demand for good content. And, and we try to make the best quality content we can with the resources and the type of you know, delivery we, we need to hit. But how long did you spend working on the commando from like when you started coming up with the idea to release? Like how long was that process? I believe we conceived the idea and put it on screenplay around spring, late spring of 2020. And then it you know, went through multiple revisions. It wasn't even called The Commando originally. It was a whole different... I mean, we had two, three titles it went through before it became The Commando. And so over the summer, there were multiple, actually pr multiple different production companies and producers that were very interested in making it. So we... We had notes from a lot of people that came in and, and some notes of our own that along the process, we had several more drafts of the script than it ended up finally being what it is. I think around August, late August, we finally knew, okay, we were going to make this film with Premier Entertainment and we went into production in October. So within two months, you know, we were able to get the cast locked, financing in place and organize the entire production with the crew and, and everything in New Mexico. And originally it was also supposed to be shot in Las Vegas, Nevada. We wrote it to be shot in Nevada, but, you know, with certain things coming into place at certain times, we had to shift it to New Mexico, which you know, I'm happy uh, because it actually turned out to be the right place for that movie. But, you know, it, it all just kind of fell into place once we knew who our key players were, who our cast was, who our producers were, you know, and the company we were going to produce with. So from there, you know, we just knew what we had to do and, and got it done. And then compared to every other film that you've made, like how difficult was this one? This one was definitely, I mean, uh, you know, challenging because it went so fast. You know, the more preparation you have, obviously, the more budget you have, the more time and everything it, it equals to making your life a little bit easier and the whole process and your job easier. But considering everything, it wasn't that, I mean, it was challenging. I, I, I wouldn't want to say it wasn't challenging, but 
there weren't any crises. There were, it, it was a pleasure to work with everyone that was part of it. Again, it's about the people you surround yourself with, the team you have, to where it was drama-free. And, you know, you have knickknacks here and there, but just with like in any production, there'd be issues if you didn't have any problems. So our job as filmmakers, producers, directors, primarily is to solve problems, come up with solutions. You know, time is money on the movie set to where, you know, you can't dwell on a problem. You have to keep moving. So we had a great team that, I mean, with, you can imagine with an 11-day schedule, you know, we didn't have time to BS around. We were focused and we worked to where it was a very professional environment set that made the job easier. And obviously, you know, we've done movies that have budget, more budget constraints and, you know, all kinds of crisis or horror stories that go on. On this one, we didn't have to deal with any of that. So it was a good, easy two-week run. So, you know, looking back at your IMDb, I mean, you've got like a ton of films you've been a part of, like 22 director credits and then 43 IMDb credits just listed on IMDb. So the question is like, like when you get started making films, like what was your process like on your first couple of features to get the, that, you know, get them made? And then like, how has that changed over the years? I guess, you know, the process has always primarily been similar. It's just kind of leveling up to bigger budgets, bigger productions, working with bigger cast over the years. And, and it really comes down to finding that team and knowing the path you want to travel in this. You can always keep dreaming or you, you get down and, and work hard and do it. I mean, it's definitely been a struggle for me from the beginning. First, I had to go through a lot of trial and errors of, you know, and you always have those stories of people starting out and being naive and getting, you know, taken advantage of, you know, from your work, maybe they don't pay you enough, or maybe they, you know, screw you over with certain bad deals to where you don't get to really, you know, sustain income, sustainable income coming from what you do. And so obviously, as an artist, especially filmmakers, you know, we have to invest a lot of time, a lot of our own money. It's like any business, you have to invest in yourself and create a business foundation to where in the beginning, you have to prove yourself. Obviously, you have to keep making content. You have to know what you want to do. If you want to be a director, if you want to be a writer, if you want to be even an editor, just an actor, whatever it is in the field, you need to learn to love it or just be passionate about it. You know, for me, when I grew up, I always knew from age three, four that I wanted to make movies, but I didn't know how I was going to make the movies, obviously, at that time, being so young. To me, watching actors on the screen made me believe that the actors were what made the movies. Then as I grew up, and I you know, matured up to learn that, no, you have a whole team, you have a director, you have a writer that writes the story, you have crew, you have a film that comes together with so many different elements. And that fascinated me more and more. But I actually went into acting. And so I, as a, as a child, I, from around seven, eight, I started training in acting schools and drama clubs. And, and so from there, I, I always stayed on that path of pursuing to make movies and tell stories. But then as I grew up around 12, 13, I was starting to act, do things on TV and 
and theater. And, you know, I, I come to realize that just being an actor isn't telling your own stories because in most cases, actors are, you know, treated like pawns. For me, I wanted to tell my original stories. And so I started writing. I started, you know, playing around with home video cameras and making my own little home movies. And then I had the opportunity to direct my own TV shows and programs that actually aired on TV at the age of 16. And that's wow. when the whole, you know, the acting bug bit me earlier when I was younger. And then I guess the director bug bit me around 16, the creator, you know, bug where I was writing, I was directing, editing, I was even working as a cinematographer, filming. I, I started to learn the entire process. And I was fortunate enough to have a program called Radio Television Productions, which was a vocational program at my high school in Valley Forge High in Ohio. That, you know, created a foundation for me in high school to be able to pursue what I wanted to do and, and make movies. And so my teacher at that time, the instructor, David Rose, he was very supportive. So from there, you know, I, I went through my high school process of making movies and content and getting that training to where I was able to transition into college when I went to film school at Columbia College, Hollywood. It was a very hands-on institute where, you know, I tried to look into other film schools that were not as hands-on. So that's why I ended up deciding to go to Columbia because from the first week on, they hand you a camera and you're able to create content and you have resources like having editing facilities and a group of, of students of three, 400 plus that share the same common goal. And some want to be directors, some want to be writers, some want to be just, you know, in post-production or sound or cameras to where you have this platform to network and just keep creating. And that's how I looked at going to film school. At that time, I had the pre-training. I was already making content that was going on TV, being a teenager. So for me, going to film school after graduating high school was like going back to work and just having the resources to be able to create and produce content professionally, whether it was just for film festivals or it was something that I ended up getting distribution on. Or if it was, you know, for class, then I still took it seriously. Like this will end up somewhere, whether, you know, it's just for a grade or I put it in some sort of a media festival, whatever it is, it'll get seen by an audience. That's how I always looked at it. And from there, it just leveled up the more networking I've done. And, and you know, for the past now, almost close to 20 years, I've just been networking and leveling up, making you know, bigger, better content and delivering. Like I said before, it's a business and you make a product, you have to deliver to the distributors so they can release it to the audience and, you know, recoup and you keep a sustainable system going for everybody. So as soon as as a filmmaker, you can understand and accept the fact that you're making films for someone else and other people, not just for yourself as an artist. I think that helps a lot to understand, you know, the job you're doing. And if you love doing it, then it just makes it a lot easier. Talk about like when you got out of college, like, did you have to get a day job or were you like already rolling, already making money on your movies and you were just able to keep on going as a filmmaker? Like, what was that like? Throughout college too, yeah, I did have certain day jobs that I tried to also kind of 
associate with, uh, you know, the entertainment industry. You know, for example, like even when I was in high school, my, my first job ever was at Burger King for like one month when I was 14 in Ohio. <laughs> I worked at Sports Bar when I was 16. And then I was like, you know what? I mean, I, I loved it because I picked up cooking. That's one of my hobbies. I love cooking on my off time. But other than that, like I love movies. So when I was 16, after my sports bar job, I went into working at a movie theater, you know, as an usher and box office clerk, concessions clerk. And I worked there all throughout my junior, senior year. And then when I moved out to California after graduating high school, I actually, you know, I, I was going to college, film school, and then I was doing freelance work as a videographer, director, you know, doing programs here and there, but it wasn't enough to really sustain since I couldn't do it full time. So at that time, I decided, all right, you know what, I'm going to, since I used to work at the Regal Entertainment Group movie theaters in Cleveland, let me see if I can find a movie theater job. Maybe I can get transferred over because I had a good record there too with getting employee of the month and all. So I, I went in there at, in Calabasas at the Edwards in Calabasas and I applied and they were looking for shift managers. And I said, you know what, I'm going to apply for a shift manager, get my reference from Cleveland for my manager there. And I put it in and I didn't expect it, but you know, I got hired. And so that was a really great job. I ended up working in management and I was running the projection booth. And back then we still had the 35 millimeter reels that came in to build that we had to build like every Wednesday, Thursdays, they would come in and they would always come in in secret labeling, you know? So if you had a Batman movie releasing that, you know, week, they wouldn't say Batman, whatever, or Marvel, whatever. It would have a completely different name of genre that you would never suspect. (laughs) And working with a lot of the studios and distributors, and I was at an, an exclusive theater in Calabasas. So we had a lot of the studio premieres there and studio screenings there before anyone else. So I had my hands on being able to pre-screen a lot of movies before anybody else and also have that experience of building and splicing the 35 millimeters and working with that whole technology and transitioning at the same time into the whole digital world. It was a very exciting job and I loved it. So I ultimately ended up leaving that job because I was making a movie at the time and I had to choose between my day job or making a movie. And then from there on, I've been blessed enough to be able to go from project to project. And then I ended up finishing film school, which took me a couple of years longer because I had to take a year break in between two projects. Wow. And I had to finish it and get my bachelor's degree because, you know, since I started it, I wanted to finish it. And that's one of the attitudes I've always had from the beginning is if you start something, you have to finish it and deliver. I mean, again, at, at the end of the day, it's a business. So sometimes you may not get the 100% quality or the 100% vision that you wanted in the project, but you still, at the end of the day, have to deliver it, finish it, deliver it on schedule, on time, so you can move on to make the next one. So was there a, a, a certain point like in your career, like in those early days where it turned from like, oh, like I don't have to go back to the, to the day job? Like, was there, was it like recouping your budget on a certain film or was it just like, 
a certain deal that you made that kind of allowed it to be a sustainable thing? Or was it sort of just like the ma- the fact you're making enough movies that there was enough money coming in from the movies? It was, I mean, it wasn't like a lot of money at all. I mean, it, I mean, there were definitely struggles like anywhere else, but it was enough where that's where I ended up having also so many different types of jobs in movies where sure I was directing at an early age, but just because I was a director, I didn't have the mindset like, Oh, I, I, I'm a director. So I can only work as a director. Or I'll only get hired as a director. That's how I ended up also producing so much because I would bring so many other resources to the table for projects where I would get hired as a producer or I at times worked as an AD and grew my craft as a director more by working with other directors and making more contacts and networking on those sets to where I've worked at a first AD, I've worked as a unit production manager, producer, I've worked as an editor, cinematographer, and then, you know, my primary focus was directing, but then I ended up writing, you know, you know, I, across the board, I've been able to do multiple different jobs and projects along the way to where whatever it was, I had income coming through from the same, you know, field that I was pursuing. So you mentioned earlier that like you were pitching the commando to different production companies and trying to get the budget, you know, together and, and get a deal to make the movie. Like, how do you find production companies to pitch to? Is it just relationships that you've made over the years of making movies? Or are you like cold calling any of these production companies? Can you just talk through your process a bit? You can't really cold call these companies to, I mean, sure, you could possibly cold call and get your script sold if it's a good enough script or exactly what it, they're looking for. But it always does come down to, at that point, who you know or what you know or you know, what you can do with a track record and because they always look at, okay, who have you delivered to before or have, you know, especially if you've worked with them before and successfully have, you know, delivered and have done a good job, then obviously you have that open door policy, but they really always look at your track record. And once you can build up a track record, then you can approach certain companies once you have that package that you can offer, because you got to remember all these companies, I mean, if you look at it, they have limited amount of releases every year. It's not like, you know, they have hundreds of films. I mean, some companies do, but it's not like, you know, every uh, one of these companies are focused on a hundred films a month or 10 films a month. I mean, most times it's, they come out with, you know, at most maybe 10 films, 12 films, six, seven films a year. And it's all about getting the placement and the slotting of, you know, what they need at that time. So if you have a package with the cast locked in, you know, exclusive script, and you hit, again, that timing of what they need, you know, at that particular moment, sometimes, yeah, you can get lucky by approaching these companies. You can look at, you know, the types of films that are being released, look at the companies that are releasing them, the distributors and the production companies. And say, if you want to make an action film, you look at who's the producer on that film and then see if you have any mutual friends or connections or ways to approach them with something that they may want. And then you just kind of go fishing at that point. And whoever gives you the best offer and deal, or at certain times, you know, it's not always about the money. For me, it's about the people and the company and 
and again, that team that we can work with. And then last question before we already do like a final five of the rapid fire question thing, but I have one more before we get there. Like when you produce a project or executive produce a project, like what's your involvement? Because I know you're, you're making so many movies. Like, are you able to go on set as a producer or is it kind of more like behind the scenes? Like, how do you like to get involved? It's always a different case by case scenario. A lot of times I am hands on as a producer or I bring certain, you know, element to the package, whether it's helping to raise financing or cast or, you know, overall just organizing things together, bringing elements together to make the project happen. Or it could be even a project that I've never even been on set, but once it's completed, I help them with distribution or sales through my channels that I have again to where, you know, they need certain content and certain times. And all of a sudden, you know, someone comes to me and approaches me with the right project. And, you know, I love helping other filmmakers. So for me, that's growth together. And sometimes if for one of my projects, if I need something, whether it's distribution or not, or, you know, something, an element along, you know, production, I feel like, you know, we, we all create this network and brotherhood of fellow filmmakers that help each other. So, uh, you know, uh, just one of my fellow filmmakers' friends, they may have a project that needs distribution. And I get that, you know, sold or, or through and, you know, I become an executive producer and part of the team. And, you know, that's how we help each other out. So I'm always involved in some way or another, whether it's even in pre-production, production, Sometimes in post, you know, I have a post facility that I'm partners with where we do delivery and post-production and I'm involved in sales and distribution as well. So it depends project by project. And of course, I have my own set of films and slate that, you know, I'm directing, producing also scripts that I have of my own that are again, you know, in process or in a pipeline. And all of a sudden, you know, like, for example, right now, what I'm living currently in production with Mojave Diamonds. That was one of the fastest turnarounds. It was just, I happened to have this idea with cast members that I've worked with previously and had access to. And the studio loved the idea and concept. And I was able to turn around a script really fast for them. And here we are within, I believe, like three months now. <laughs> oh, wow. In production. Now, okay, let's see if we get through these pretty fast. So, First question is, what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Oh, man. Um, I've actually received, uh, received this from a uh, few people. But the best filmmaking advice, I would say, is not to dwell on one certain project, whether it's a project that hasn't happened, something that you've already made, and you just it come out the same you imagined, or you, know, you didn't get the perfect deal or whatnot. You know, if you dwell on one project, you block yourself from moving forward into other opportunities and making multiple projects. There was a project in my past that I dwelled with for about a year and a half, two years, actually more than that. And it, it you know, put me in a depression state and it blocked other opportunities and other projects from happening. And as soon as I started taking that advice of, you know, don't dwell on one project, move on, make something else it'll all come back together. As soon as I start following that advice, I've started getting project after project to the point where, you know, I get to pick and choose now and, and even, you know, reject certain projects just because I don't have the full time. But 
at that time, it was like I was, I was getting almost to be a desperate filmmaker thinking, oh, holy crap, you know, what am I going to do now? You know, this project, I couldn't do it the way I want to do. How can I move on now? But as soon as I let that go and I embraced the new projects, it was nonstop. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? My goal is to keep growing, to be the best I can ever be as a filmmaker and to keep learning from every project and you utilizing those lessons to grow because as a filmmaker what's so fascinating to me is that you're always learning about the subject matter you're working on with the people you're working with and you're always every day i'm on a set or without even being on set just talking to another filmmaker you know uh, pitching ideas back and forth and seeing those ideas come to life you're experiencing magical things every day and that's what's so exciting is, is to kind of, you know, imagine where I can be another 10, 20, 30 years from now as a filmmaker, how much growth we can have. And as long as I can have that open mind of knowing that, you know, I'm never going to know too much or never going to know enough as a filmmaker, I think uh, that's what's going to keep the motivation going. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Um, not to get too ahead of myself, you know, and, and again, to embrace the timing of everything, let time, you know, I mean, it, you know, when I was much younger, obviously, you know, as you're growing high school, college years, you want it now, you want everything now, uh, especially in our business, you know, patience is a virtue. That's the one thing I've learned the hard way as well. So, but you have to, sometimes you have to go through those struggles and life lessons to grow. So I, I don't think I would really regret anything because I'm very happy where I am today and excited to see where I'm going. But I would say, yeah, just accept the fact that, you know, patience is a virtue in this business. And then last question, is making movies hard? Oh, uh, definitely. <laughs> One thing people tell me, and yeah, it's true, is if it was easy, then everyone would be doing it. It comes with a lot of sacrificing I mean, we, we really don't have normal lives. We don't work normal schedules. We don't, you know, work in normal conditions. It is hard. It's not all glitz and glamour at all. I mean, yeah, it's nice to see your work on the big screen or, you know, being marketed everywhere. But at the end of the day, you know, to make a film, to execute it and to put it out and to even, you know, put it all together, it's probably one of the most challenging and hardest professions, you know, to be in is long hours, 24 seven work, really. And there's a reason sometimes, you know, we like to take vacations in between because you got to recharge, you have to refresh and I don't get as much family time as I would like to. And, uh, you know, it's hard uh, to manage both worlds sometimes. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show. Last question, where should people go if they want to watch the commando? Where can they see it? This will come out like the week that it's going to release. Like where should people go? So I believe it's releasing both in theaters, limited release theaters, I believe in 20 different markets around the US. I don't know exactly which theaters yet. I believe you have to check a week or two before January 7th is the release date. So it'll be in theaters, on demand and digital, pretty much anywhere you can rent movies or stream, I believe. It's a Paramount release, so Paramount Plus, I believe, will also have the release same time as it's in theaters. So 
I would recommend you guys all go out to the theaters and support indie film and you know, the sound and everything definitely won't compare to the small screen. But if you can't, then I'm sure you can definitely find it on digital all over. So since Liz wasn't part of this conversation, I'll just talk about what I remember. <laughs> it's, it's so crazy to me just to hear about the way that he makes his films and, and, and at the level that he's at now. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's achievable, but you just have to have certain like focuses and certain way of looking at things like to him it's it's all about delivering you know and finishing the the work and like getting it done and like even if like you're not oh it didn't turn out perfectly or it's not just the way that you want it to be that doesn't matter like you have to finish it you have to deliver it so you can move on to the next project and it's not about like obsessing over the perfect movie and obsessing over this perfect script it's more like you make something you gotta make the next one you make something you got to make the next one. And you try to do the best you can and get better, better every time. So it was like a very interesting perspective that he had on filmmaking. I think that's really healthy. But I, I do think that in certain circles, th- your brand can get too watered down and you could be thought of as just a director for hire who isn't going to put an imprint on a film if you don't finesse that. So I'd be curious what his perspective is there. Yeah, that's like the whole other side of the coin. Yeah. That this, this is like the, this is this voice that I hear from lots of other people, and I feel like this voice has stopped people from making their first features a lot because they say, "Oh, your first feature is so important." It doesn't have, have to, to be good. It doesn't have to be good, but it has to have your imprint on it. Mm. I think. Yeah, it has to be about themes that you care about, or I think it should care about themes you care about. I guess from his perspective, I, I'm, I'm going to speak for him a little bit here, but I think what he would say is like, you know, it's more about just delivering for the, for the studio, like delivering right. what you, you need to make. Like, like they need a Christmas it's movie. It's a job. Yeah. Let's make a fucking awesome Christmas movie, you know? And like whether or not his imprint of, of you know, Steve Akbar is on that movie, I don't know. I, that's a question you'd have to ask him. But I mean, I feel like it's more like he sees a prompt and he sees like a thing that needs to be serviced and he like... He hits it, you know, Amazing. and then goes on to the next one. So, very fascinating. Well, what is equally fascinating is that we have an article from The Hollywood Reporter written by Kim Masters talking about Hollywood's year of dizzying uncertainty. And we're here to talk about this article. And Malrick, uh, <laughs> what were your thoughts on what Kim had to say about Hollywood? I think like it was interesting. Like they were outlining some things, like how things have changed. Like like there's all these studios aren't what they are, or they're gone. You know, like Fox is gone now. You know, part of Disney, and like you know all these things that have changed the landscape for like people in in the town. You know, and and like these players who like work at these studios or whatever. But you know, for people like us, like who the who the hell cares? Like it, it doesn't really matter because there's so much uncertainty in a life of a filmmaker. Anyways, who's like this studio, that studio, whatever, this streamer, that streamer. It's like, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's just like, we're, we're still trying to get our, our films made. We're trying to still get our, our films bought. The, the fact that there's more players to buy films would be good. But, you know, I'm not exactly sure if that's true. But I mean, there definitely seems to be a lot of need for content a lot of, along a lot of different delivery systems. But I feel like for people who are like coming from the traditional world where there are like these big people who controlled so much of the industry and made decisions happen and like the Ovitzes of like the agent world from like the 80s or you know whatever you can name all these big heavyweight like producers or executive producers or whatever but like they're saying that that doesn't really exist anymore and it's like well maybe that's a good thing 
that there's people who don't have so much power. Maybe it's good that it's spread out a little bit amongst many, many different people. I think that's probably a better world for us to live in. I don't know. So that was my reaction. What, what do you think? Well, yeah, I'm not a fan of this article. I'm not a fan of articles like this that kind of make these grandiose predictions and assessments of the industry at large. It did remind me, I interned for Adam Goodman at Paramount for like six months. And one of the tasks you give the intern or the assistant is to update the address book. So I would call every single office and I would say, hey, is this your assistant still? You know, what's the right contact information? Does Johnny or Susie still occupy the role as president of this production company? Whatever it is. And it just reminded Johnny me that like <laughs> Johnny or Susie, that the information <laughs> on the musical chairs, like the musical chairs of it all is currency when you work in the standard Hollywood machinations. It's just so interesting to me. Like I read this through and I was like, I don't know any of these names. Stanky's somewhat familiar, but whatever. Like I've heard the name Bob Iger, but I'm just saying like, I don't know these names with a degree of intimacy. But if you work in development or if you work at the studio system, you go to cocktail parties and the fun thing is to gossip about the musical chairs of it all. And like, Mm. I feel so far removed from any of that and I could care less, (laughs) you know, and you probably would get to know these names if you're on that water bottle tour that you get to be on when you meet studio execs and production companies. But ultimately, I feel very far removed. But along the lines of what you're saying, who cares? (laughs) I think it's good that they're losing power. The article complained a little bit about like, where's the old crotchety stalwarts of the industry and where did they go? And it's like, it's great that we don't have those hot heavyweight producers who were megalomaniacal dictators. And it's good that the thing, the power spread, but it's just going to change in two weeks anyway. So why keep up is how I feel. Right. I think what matters for us is just like our not, you know, established talent getting opportunities, you know, like that I think is what's interesting to me is like, are people taking risks on new time filmmakers? Are people taking risks on new time directors? You know, and I feel like it's probably the same that it always is like, not really, you know, <laughs> like you kind of have to prove yourself, like you have to break through in some way in order for someone to want to hire you for something. That's why. When you watch the new Boba Fett show, guess who directed it? Robert Rodriguez, you know, because he's a famous, well-established filmmaker, you know? Like, they're not giving these opportunities to unknown names. Anything that you... I could just watch this movie Encounter on Amazon. It's like, you look at the director and it's like, oh, this guy, like, his first film went to Toronto, right? (laughs) So, surprise, surprise, these are the people who are getting these movies funded and getting them made and getting on platforms with like named talent. You know, it's not someone who hasn't done it before or did it before with something that was a small movie that didn't have a big splash. Like you have to have a big splash or some sort of splash in order to like get into that door, you know, with your, with your first project. I still think it's representation. Like I'm just thinking of, I was on a walk today and I was like, oh, geez. I feel like all we do on the podcast and in the incubator and this pod that I'm doing with Naomi McDougall-Jones is we just deconstruct how to make it in this industry. I'm at the point where I feel like I have too much information and I can't figure out a clear line anymore. It's like when you get older, you're a little kid and things are simple and you get older and you're like, no, there's too much information. I cannot see the forest from the trees. And right now I, I can see that my friends with TV directing jobs and studio directing jobs have representation. And that does seem to be the trick. 
But I always go back to Jen McGowan saying she had to prove herself in the room that she was a trustworthy, reliable force. So it's a combination of the personality and the representation. And the representation comes if you make the splash. And it's easier to make the splash, I think, if you don't have the support of artists of like Sundance in the genre world. So if you're going to reverse engineer getting into the studio system, it feels like going back to what we said in the beginning, like making your first film and putting too much thought and effort into it. Going into the genre space still feels like the smarter decision in order to get into the system if that's where you want to be. Yeah. I also feel like, I don't know, would you tell somebody who doesn't like genre movies to make genre movies no. though? No. Or like, Because like, to me, it's like, you don't want to do something that's not like what you want to do with yourself, you know? Yeah. Like I just got lucky that that's what I care about, that I just love genre filmmaking. I love genre films. That's all I ever really wanted to do. And so that's what I'm doing. But yeah, I don't know. I think for somebody who like wants to make, you know, <laughs> whatever indie dramas or whatever it is, maybe that's what they should do. But don't know? do just, But again, don't do it with expectations that the system's going to embrace you. So if you're, right. my whole point is if you're trying to reverse engineer a world in the system that I don't understand, the system of these names and these revolving musical chairs, you do it through support, through representation, which is really hard to get without making the splash in the first place, or you go into genre. Mm. And it's the faster track is what I keep going back to. Right, right. Okay, so Liz, yeah, I think we're done with this article. What <laughs> is uh, What are you looking forward to in 2022? Like, are you one of these people who like makes plans for the year or has resolutions or has goals or like what do you think about when you're going into a new year? Well, okay. So I think the, the main thing I wanted to talk about, because I knew you were going to ask this question because I looked at our outline, is, you know, I've been talking a lot about Naomi McDougal Jones and me and we co-founded this incubator. And then coming out of that incubator is going to, is currently a collective and we're building a collective right now. And I have essentially volunteered to be the first film to go into production of this collective. So 2022 is going to be feature three for me, and I have to finish writing it. <laughs> so I don't, I'm not a person that makes resolutions because I think they're very difficult to keep track of. My resolution is I really want to snorkel this year, but my plans for 2022 is making a film in this collective with Naomi and forming a production that is a lot more thoughtful than the way films have been put together in the past and taking stuff from guests we've had before, like Aleem Hossein's small filmmaking and Talia Lugasi, who we just interviewed her collective and taking all the information that we've garnered over the years and putting it to good use in the formation of these films. So is your plan to shoot in 2022? Is that like pretty sure, pretty sure. I mean, we are going to start fundraising, I think, this spring. And then my, my suggestion was that I was going to go in late fall or early 2023. Mm, nice. Awesome. Yeah. And this is a genre movie, obviously. This one is genre, but it's, I co-wrote it with my friend Amy and we are in the middle of a block. So every week we talk about the block and how we want to fix the writer's block and where do we want to go now and... I have an idea of where I want to go. So I think we might be able to reopen the script in the next week or so. And uh, is it horror, thriller, science fiction? What do you got? It's horror and it's really gory and it's a f- all-female cast and there's no sex 
but there's lots of gore, but I wouldn't necessarily say there's violence. And it's inspired by movies like The Descent or Final Girls or Jennifer's Body, but it has its own little snarky twist. So gore without violence? That's interesting. I'm more interested in gore than violence. I just think body horror is interesting. I think it's more like we're going to find the bodies and the bodies are going to be contorted and disgusting and bloody, but we're not necessarily going to see the kills until the end. So I think that's, I don't, I'm not as interested in like the slasher model. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I guess that, that works. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I like seeing like, like finding like a gory thing later is cool and all. And I think especially early in a movie, like that's really fun to like, like see the aftermath of something grotesque or terrible. But like, I think as a viewer, like this is just me personally, like I want to see it happen. Like mm-hmm. I want to see it on screen. So like, you know, I, f- I always feel cheated when I, when I don't see that, you know, like there was a movie that we had the writer on for Werewolves Within. Did you ever watch it? Misha? No. <laughs> so Werewolves Within was great. But as a werewolf film, at the end of it, I felt very robbed in a way. Like they tried to deliver what they were supposed to be delivering, but they just didn't do it enough, you know? Mm-hmm. And for a werewolf movie... You're saying you didn't get you to see expect- the transition from person well, to you, werewolf? You did. It just was, it was a little lacking. And mm-hmm. then what you see the werewolf do is less than what you'd hope for in a werewolf film. And the type of kills that you see in this movie... Like, you see a lot of what you're describing, like a lot of aftermath, like a yeah. lot of that kind of stuff. But then the actual kills themselves aren't very impressive. And in a werewolf movie, it's like impressive kills, like you need to have at least one or two. You know? Interesting. So, I don't know. Well, Anyways, I mean, that's to, just my perspective. To add some color to it, I mean, the reason we've been blocked is because we wrote a script with supernatural elements. And I started thinking to myself, I don't want to do supernatural. I want it to be real. And I want it to feel... Like, this could happen. And then on the walk the other day, or I think this this morning, I was like, no, let's just make it a witch movie. Let's just make it witch. And I think with a certain degree of supernatural without like the Satanist idea, but like witchcraft and Wiccan lifestyles, maybe there's transformations at work, but I don't necessarily want to see like a possessed person stabbing another person. Like, I don't want to see these acts mm -hmm. of like ridiculous violence on screen. Yeah. Stabbing is so, like, lame. Like, the whole slasher <laughs> thing. Right. You know, if that's not... Yeah. I feel like if, if I saw someone stab somebody in a movie, which, which you do see in, like, Fear Street, for instance, and that's, like, your big kill, it's a stabbing, or even an axe to the, to the chest, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, how many axes to the chest have I seen in my day? So many hundreds of thousands. Right. Like, you've got to come up with something more fun, you know? Like, if you're going <laughs> to do kills in a movie... They've got to be more interesting than that. Like, then that's why I watched this movie, what's it called? Freaky with Vince Vaughn. Yeah, I've seen Freaky. And the kills in that movie are, yeah, they're inspired. They're (laughs) incredibly good. Like, every kill in that movie is, is like different and interesting. You know, they don't, they don't do anything that's like expected, you know? And so I think that that's like what you should be going for. Like, if you're going to be doing a kill movie, but I mean, obviously your movie isn't a kill movie. I, I really, Based on what you just said, that you wanted it to, to not be supernatural, but be, you know, and then you're like, oh, maybe it will be supernatural. You should really watch Encounter because okay. that movie, it sets itself up as, as a sci-fi film, mm-hmm. but then it's not really a sci-fi movie. 
But as a sci-fi fan, it still services a lot of that interest. And then as a genre fan, it like totally delivers all the way. Hmm. So yeah, you should check that one out. That was actually really good. Yeah. And I think might might give you some inspiration for like how to f- to figure out your quandary with your film. Maybe. Cool. Thank you. Well, what's what are your resolutions yeah. for 2022? Uh, yeah, I've been thinking about this. So I, I don't want to put any like heavy pressure on myself to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to make a movie, you know, in 2022 or anything like that. Like I know how long it takes to raise money, especially for me. I just, you know, I don't want to like expect that of myself. Like I think like especially the movie that I'm trying to raise money for now, it's like it's such a big budget. It's such a step up from what I've done. Like I, I'm fine if that takes many, many years to raise the budget for, but I kind of want to be open to like new experiences, new opportunities. Like if there's a movie that, you know, comes my way that I can tr- visualize a way to get it made or like make it for a low amount of money, that's something I'm really interested in. And I'm also writing. So like I'm hoping to have this script done in the first half of the year, somewhere around May you know, to kind of coincide with the release of the alternate. And then obviously just to make sure the release of the alternate goes really well and is as big as it can be, you know? And then like, yeah, not like, again, I'm not going to put like super pressure on myself. Like I have to get representation in 2022. But I think after talking to this manager who we're going to have on the show soon, I think I'm going to start looking and start investigating Mm -hmm. and, and start putting some work into it rather than just being passive and sort of see what's out there and see if there's room for me at any company or with any kind of manager or agent and to see if that's something that would be healthy for me and if I can find the right partner, you know, and not and not just say yes to anybody, but try to find somebody who I think would be good for me and then take that first sort of step in that direction. You know, so those are sort of the, the things I'm thinking about. It's like finish this script. So I have another script that I've written, not just something that I'm attached to keep my my feelers open for other projects and then continue to raise money for brothers. So those are like my goals for 2022. And yeah, geez, if I get to make a movie in 2022, I mean, that'd be incredible. But I, I feel like I'm fine waiting another year if I don't shoot until 2023 or even 2024. We'll see what happens, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, I'm not in any rush. You fin- <laughs> you, your first feature isn't even out in the world. So I wouldn't, you yeah. know, that's, you're, you're taking the right pace right yeah. now. After talking to Talia too, it's just like, yeah, why rush? Like, what's the hurry? Oh, my God. You know, I if you want to make a interview. good movie, oh. it's like just, yeah, she's fantastic. It was sort of like an affirmation of some of the things I've been thinking about lately is that like, you know, you don't need to hurry. Like, there is no time limit on any of this. We can just make our movies in our time, but make the movie when it's right to make and make the movie that you care about. And I think it will my tune change. Like, if I get approached with a money job, right? If like someone's like, oh, we'll actually pay you to direct this movie. And then I read the script. I'm like, well, do I want to be a working filmmaker or do I not want to be a working filmmaker? You know, it's like, that's going to be a, a tough decision. But for now, I want to kind of follow that path of just like, you know, write the things I care about and like look for a good film to make, but like not try to rush it and put pressure to like do it in a certain time frame. That makes perfect sense. And we, you have self your day job and you also have yeah. your family. A baby. And so there's a lot of yeah. things coming together. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I wrote a list of like everything that I'm doing and I'm like, I just think this is boring if I just like state it all out loud. But <laughs> I was walking along today and I was, I've been obsessing over this horror feature in the block. And I was like, why did I just make this horror short about witchcraft if I'm not going to apply it to something bigger, you know? And I was like, why am I avoiding the witch storyline for a horror film? I kept saying, I don't want supernatural, I want supernatural. But I think there's something very 
like chewy and interesting about women and witchcraft and nature that doesn't feel as like phony as like a ridiculous like demon story. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I just think like at least this break has given me some time to think and just like probably it sounds like you're doing too. How do you use the, the work that you're putting out into the world to roll into the next thing so it doesn't feel like just a one-off hanging out there in the universe? Right. So that's also part of where my mind is turning is like, why did I do this one thing if I'm not going to tie it to the larger picture? So, yeah. It's so funny. Speaking of that, like, you know, I, I did this pitch event, you know, for yeah. my new feature brother, which is very different than the alternate. And then one of the people who looked at the brother pitch deck and, and the brother short film, they were like, oh, this is great and everything, but like, I really love the alternate. Do you have anything more like the alternate that you can, <laughs> that you can show me? And I'm like, well, <laughs> kind of, but not really. It's not ready yet, you know? And so it's yeah. sort of like, sort of a reminder that like, that's probably going to be a thing right. that people are going to say. And so like what I'm writing right now is not like the alternate. It's very different. It's almost like, like, I kind of want to get this one movie out of my system just to have it written because like, I really like it, you know, and I'm really excited by it. But it, it does make me think that I should be focusing on something like the alternate, I, I, even if, if it isn't an alternate sequel, but something that has the same sort of feeling, like the same sort of like, okay, it's like a, it's a contained science fiction story about character and the character and like the emotions around the character are like the, the bigger part of the story. It's not just the sci-fi element. It's kind of like all intertwined together where like the next thing I'm writing is more like just fun, crazy sci-fi action, comedy, ridiculousness. And it's less about a human story. It's more about like fun and crazy. I bet though, I bet if you really took a look at it, cause I was thinking about this, like when you write your bio or you're pitching yourself to someone, you can find a common thread in all the work you've done. So if people yeah. say they want something like the alternate, you could be like, well, brother is actually a lot like the alternate in these three ways. Cause as a filmmaker, <laughs> this is how I am. And it's all the three things that I really want to talk about right. for the rest of my life. The ending is certainly similar. Well, there someone you else go. commented on that. There you go. <laughs> They're like, See? you just love these, these dark, sick endings. And I was like, yeah, I do. Don't I? <laughs> <laughs> so then, yeah, then it's just about pitching yourself in a way that other people can be convinced that they're very similar. Yeah, totally. Do you know what's also really similar? What's that? Sending us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast and making movies is hard.com. It's not similar at all. But if you do like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Music, also known as iTunes. Are they the same thing? I don't know anymore. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Thanks to Asif Akbar for coming on the show, Tatum Wan from Katrina Wan PR for setting this up. Our producer, Eric, for being wonderful. Our editor, Jeff Vrymoots, for doing the editing. Thank you to everyone for listening and talk to you all next week. I'm a distribution consultant who used to do sales and I, uh, fuck, keep fucking that up. Okay. Steve also talks about jumping from film to film. I just said that. His love for producing. <laughs>